Listener supported. WNYC Studios. This is Brian Lehrer's Daily Politics Podcast from WNYC Studios. It's Tuesday, November 14th. Last year, the 27th United Nations Climate Change Conference, also known as COP27, the U.S.-led developed countries in resisting language that would make richer countries the source of funding, even though they've arguably contributed more to more pollution over time. Now ahead of the 28th conference, it looks like the U.S. will join the negotiations table once again. COP28 will be held in Dubai this year, starting on November 30th. Joining me now to break down what the U.S. will pledge going into global COP28 climate talks and what's at stake this year is Bob Berwin, science correspondent for Inside Climate News. Welcome to WNYC, Bob. Hi, it's great to be here, and and thanks for having me. Well, we're so glad that you're going to help us unpack some of what is in this framework. Laid out at COP27 was what the U.S. walked away from. Can you explain for us what happened there? The critical meeting, I think that you're referring to that the U.S. uh, walked away from at the very end, actually was just, uh, just about a week ago in Abu Dhabi, and it was part of a six-month series of negotiations on setting up recommendations for a loss and damage fund. And just as the document was being accepted on a consensus basis, the U.S. negotiator apparently left the room and then returned and said, wait, we weren't here, so it's not a consensus And so there was a little unclarity at the end of this process. And several days later, the U.S. then clarified its position, said now we're satisfied that we understand what everybody's being asked to agree to. So we welcome this set of recommendations for a loss and damage fund. And it's connected to COP27 from last year because that was when all 198 countries there agreed that this loss and damage fund should go forward. And so that triggered this uh, this rather long set of negotiations that literally ended just last week. And it leads directly into COP28, which you mentioned coming up, because it will once again be a key item on the agenda there. Bob, this show has covered the Conference of Parties, or COP for short, in recent years. But can you give us a a COP 101? When did the conference start and what have its biggest accomplishments been to date? And how binding are its resolutions? The United Nations Framework on on Climate Change, the Convention on Climate Change, uh, came into being about 1990. And starting in about 1992, there have been annual meetings where all the countries get together and try to determine a climate policy. Right from the start, it was uh, it was the, the goal was to limit harmful global warming. There's there's not really much else to it, and to ensure hopefully fair and sustainable development. And um, there are no binding or mandatory, legally binding or mandatory elements to it. It's all Hmm. based on voluntary contributions, what each country, each nation brings to COP and what they're willing to agree on as they meet once a year. It's also important to remember that they don't just meet once a year. There's a there's a 
uh, you know, a steady office at Bonn, Germany, and they have meetings uh, each half year in between the main cops, and there are subsidiary technical committees that basically keep working all year long. And what they do is try to make incremental progress toward reducing emissions, toward limiting harmful global warming. Um, you know, by far the biggest achievement out of this is the Paris Climate Agreement. Mm -hmm. when countries set really firm targets and uh, a voluntary mechanism to reach those targets with voluntary reviews, voluntary nationally determined contributions, and a five-year checkup, which is significant right now because of COP28, which will be the first time that we're doing this. Uh, the UN has its own language. They call it a, a global stock take, and I call it sort of a checkup on the climate promises that have been made. <laughs> um, I, I think one thing one thing that you know is important is is that I think sometimes the expectations going into these conferences are a little high, and sometimes I think some people expect, or even many people you know, some sort of major new agreement or new deal that's going to save the climate, so to say. But there is no silver bullet. There's no COP ferry that's going to wave a wand and fix the climate. <laughs> COP is what individual countries bring to the table and decide to agree on. Nothing more, nothing less. Before we get too far into to the discussion of COP28 and the expectations there, I want to mm -hmm. rewind for a moment and talk about this loss and damage fund that's been in the news in recent years, but you report it's been around at least formally since about 2007 at COP13. Um, it's a technical United Nations umbrella term. Can you talk about what it encompasses? It encompasses setting up a fund that will help developing poorer countries uh, deal with climate impacts that they otherwise are really almost unable to deal with, because in some cases, the scope of some of the climate disasters has become so intense that it's wiping out, uh, you know, in, in one case uh, of a hurricane, I think in Dominica, you know, 80% of the country's uh, gross national product. I mean, the, the costs are just beyond what any single country can afford in some cases. And so uh, since this term was first mentioned as part of the UN climate process. Countries have been wrestling with a way to set this up and, and do it in a way that avoids liability for past damages because uh, none of the countries that produce a lot of greenhouse gas emissions necessarily want to be on the hook legally for all the damage that's already been caused. So the last loss and damage fund is something to address things going forward. Um, from now on, there'll be a board of directors on this loss and damage fund. You can think of it as a bank that will hmm. offer uh, grants and direct budget assistance um, in the face of these increasing climate disasters that we're seeing and that are affecting developing countries more. They just have less ability to deal with, uh, you know, to repair the disaster sure. once it's been destroyed. And And there's a you know, there's a level of this, too, of, of sort of at least trying to think about addressing losses that are really hard to attach a monetary value to. 
um, their burial grounds being lost in Pacific Islands, mm. and, uh, cultural, sacred cultural sites that have been used by communities for you know thousands of years that are being lost to sea level rise and. There are several million people living in the Arctic in snow-dependent cultures who are really at risk of, of sort of losing the basis for, for their way of life. Things that are hard to put a dollar figure on. Andrew from Brooklyn. Andrew, thanks for calling WNYC. Oh, hi, Bridget. Hi, Bob. Um, I just wanted to make a brief comment that it's impossible to take any of this seriously or do you think about the, what nuanced discussions might happen at the conference when they do it in Dubai? You know, it's another country, United Arab Emirates, that's just rich on fossil fuel money. You know, they're doing sports washing, green washing, political washing like the Saudis and the Qataris. And, you know, it's just I'm so cynical and skeptical and it's just really sad. And if there's a response, I'll take it off the air. Thank you for listening. Andrew, thanks for your call. And I'll just add, Bob, that. The BBC reported in January 2023 that the head of one of the world's biggest oil companies has been named to lead the COP28 global climate talks in Dubai. Uh, Sultan Ahmed Al-Jabbar is currently the chief executive officer of the Abu Dhabi National Oil Company. Are, are you familiar with that story? And is that still the case? And then just generally reaction to yeah. Andrew's point. First general reaction is that out of the out of the uh, twenty eight cops, about fifteen have been held in in what we would call fossil producing countries, where fossil fuels are a big a big part of the economy. Um, it's easy to be cynical about the process. It's it's a lot harder to be, you know, to try and find the good in it. I always ask myself, would we be better off without it right now? Would we? Would our emissions be higher or lower? Hmm. Um, and the third thing, just a technical point, is that again, what I what I said earlier, COP is a, a is a group of 198 countries, and even if the conference is in Dubai, and even if the presidency is uh, an executive with the national oil company of that country. There's nothing in the in the rules of the United Nations that could stop those 198 countries from, for example, adopting a fossil fuel phase out on day one of the conference. The fact that it's in Dubai or the fact of who the president is couldn't stop them from doing that. You know, I want to make sure that we put a fine point on it about what is expected of the United States at the end of this month when COP28 takes place in terms of, you know, an actual monetary commitment that the U.S. is supposed to make or um, any terms that they have more explicitly said that they would pledge that we've then what we've seen over the years when it comes to climate? Specifically to loss and damage, John Kerry went on record a couple of days ago as saying that the U.S. will contribute something. Um, he talked about several millions of dollars and was, you know, didn't offer a specific figure. And, and those numbers, I'm sure, will be up for negotiation. And I think the U.S. is going to focus on uh, on reducing methane also at this conference once again. And again, it's it's sort of an ongoing process. And, and there's not going to be one big thing that the U.S. is going to bring to the table and say this is going to solve the, you know, solve the climate crisis. Is there, you've written that the reticence expressed by American officials fit a historic pattern of U.S. ambivalence in the climate talks, often claiming leadership, but then turning around and rejecting multilateralism completely. 
Um, how has the U.S. engaged with the COP in previous years? And, and you know, is there anything to be optimistic about in, in this upcoming uh, conference? Well, I would say that, you know, under the current administration, the, the U.S. brings a lot more to the table than under the under the past administration and is more engaged in the process. And um, even though still constrained by domestic politics in terms of how much funding it can commit to anything internationally, which needs congressional approval in a lot of cases, um, you know, the U.S. has uh, great climate science, for example, that it can bring to the table and share and technical innovation. Those are areas where the U.S. is that the U.S. is always focused on. Let's go to Bill in Queens. Bill, thanks for calling WNYC. I'm wondering if your guest could comment on a report that I was told came out today uh, under the uh, authorship of the United States called the Climate Assessment Survey, which apparently is done every five years. And uh, they report the damage done by climate on an annual basis, and it was reported to be in the, quote, tens of billions, and I'm sure it's more than tens of billions. But I'm wondering if the uh, the guest is familiar with that uh, report, if that's available to the public, uh, and so forth. Sure. Bill, thanks so much for your call. And uh, Bob, I know you're really focused on COP28 at the moment, but any yeah, initial reactions? I, I can answer those questions. Yeah, the National Climate Assessment is available to the public. Uh, type it into Google, it will come up. It's NCA5, the fifth National Climate Assessment. Um, and I can briefly describe what it is. It's a great resource for Americans. It's It's focused on the U.S. and U.S. territories, and it has really specific geographic breakdowns and different categories of climate impacts and climate changes, which, you know, are pretty varied according to which, where you live in the United States. And it's really easy to search. And it's authored by, you know, some of the best climate scientists in the world. And the climate damage estimates in there are pretty much in line with what we um, you know, here on an annual basis from NOAA, which keeps track on a sort of a, a running basis of uh, of million dollar, billion dollar climate disasters. And they've been increasing each year dramatically, you know, the last 10 or 15 years. And so the National Climate Assessment kind of puts that all together. Uh, one of the really, uh, uh, I think, new things about this year's National Climate Assessment, as it was reported by my colleagues at Inside Climate News, is that it really puts together, and this kind of ties back to our loss and damage discussion, mm -hmm. it really connects uh, climate solutions with environmental justice and sort of makes it clear that you have to address some fundamental environmental and economic inequities in order to find a sustainable, sustainable climate solutions. Bob, we have a bunch of really interesting calls coming in. Um, and one just picking up on your point just a moment ago about the loss and damage um, fund. I have Mook from Santa Barbara, California. Mook, welcome to WNYC. Hi, Bridget. Hi, Bob. I was just Hi. wondering whether or not this decision could be reversed. Like, for example, we saw a few years ago that when the new administration came in, they pulled out of the Paris Agreement. So if there's a new administration, say, next year, could they, say, reverse and, and pull out of the loss and damage group? Um, if we commit money 
how committed is that money? Could that also be pulled out? Just wondering about the reversibility of this decision. Thank you. Yeah, good questions. Yes, it it can be reversed. We've seen that previously where the U.S. has committed to other climate funds, the green climate funds specifically. And one of the first things that uh, when uh, one of the first things the Trump administration did was reverse that funding. So, yeah, that's very possible. And it's all voluntary anyway. Um, and it'll probably be year to year, which isn't really adequate. It doesn't address the needs. There needs to be a really steady source of, of funding for this. So those are all really valid, legitimate concerns. Mook, thanks as always for your very smart calls and questions. Let's go to Ellen in Manhattan. Ellen, thanks for calling WNYC. Good morning. Thanks for taking my call. Um, I'd like to talk about the issue of militarism and, and climate change, given that the U.S. military, for example, is the largest institutional emitter of carbon gases and the largest institutional user of fossil fuels. But it's my understanding that all the previous COP um, agreements have, in fact, included a specific clause that military emissions don't have to be reported. So I'm wondering, I mean, it seems to me like an elephant in the room here. Why aren't people talking about these ridiculous military jets and the amount of carbon that they're spewing into the air. Um, mm-hmm. Thank you. Ellen, thanks for that question. Go ahead, Bob. That's a great question and a great comment. Actually, we should be we should be talking about that more. I'm not sure exactly how to go about that doing that. We should be reporting on it more, too. And it's a discussion we've had in our, our newsroom. And we've touched on it in, in connection with specific things like the Ukraine war. Uh, not only emissions, but the the other environmental damage that's caused. And I think if you take it to an even bigger level, um, I, I was listening to a panel recently uh, with some scientists moderated by by Jeffrey Sachs at Columbia University. And, you know, he said, we know that there are technical solutions to the climate crisis. We know what to do in terms of energy use and how to reduce carbon emissions. And then he made a comment that startled me. He said, you know, unfortunately, it seems at the moment we just have a lot of governments in the world that like war. And he sort of left it at that and said that's probably a topic for a separate discussion. And as your caller said, maybe it's time to start really, really having that discussion. Uh, Another interesting aspect to that is that I learned from a great book called The Nutmeg's Curse by Amitav (laughs) Ghosh. Um, is how much of the U.S. military in particular is deployed simply to protect fossil fuel interests, meaning, you know, the tanker routes, the pipelines, the oil fields all over the world, and so forth. So you could almost see that if we stop using fossil fuels and switch to domestically produced renewables, you, you, you may see some emissions cuts just from that because we wouldn't have to have hundreds of ships and airplanes in motion at all times to ensure the security of those of that fossil fuel infrastructure. So, so you know, a huge amount of our bases and all the transportation that goes with that and all the logistics and training is all related to protecting fossil fuel interests all over the world. Bob, before we let you go, as we said in the intro, those climate talks will begin at the end of November. What stories will you be keeping an eye out for? 
That's another good question. I, I have a few things. I have a few things in mind. I want to spend a full day with uh, with somebody at the talks and just kind of follow them through the day, you know, a whole day of hectic negotiations and mm. learn about them a little bit, find out how they're why they're into it and, and so on. Um, there's a push by European countries right now to try and wrangle up a, a, a global coalition for a real fossil fuel phase out. And that speaks to, the, I think, the first question, you know, where we're talking about having this in a fossil fueled country. Uh, I think there's some feeling that this is the moment to, to bring that to a head and at least put it on the table. And again, since it's an incremental process, um, you know, I don't know that they necessarily expect to get that this year, but the way COP works is you put it on the table, you build coalitions, you work on getting people to agree on stuff. And one person specifically said, yeah, we're looking at two years from now when COP is in Brazil with maybe a, a, someone perceived to be a more climate friendly host, that that would be the year to achieve that. And hmm. everybody would be, you know, might be ready for it. Well, we will have to leave it there for now. Lots to follow coming out of these talks. I'm sure we will be reading your reporting then. My guest has been Bob Berwin, science correspondent for Inside Climate News. Thanks so much for coming on today and explaining this to us. Absolutely. Have a good day. Brian Lehrer, A Daily Politics Podcast, is an excerpt from my live daily radio show, The Brian Lehrer Show, on WNYC Radio, 10 a.m. to noon Eastern Time, if you want to listen live at WNYC.org. Thanks for listening today. Talk to you next time.